Welcome to Rings and Realms, Episode 4. In this week's episode of the Rings of Power, we got a ton of new revelations. We got to meet one of the big bad guys, we discovered what was in the glowing box, and we got to see the downfall of Numenor for crying out loud a lot earlier than I thought we would. There is a lot to talk about, needless to say. Let's get to it. In episode three, we had a major emphasis on fathers, and we talked about that last week, the Adar episode, which of course means father. In episode four, though, the attention really shifts from the fathers to the children, in particular, thinking about their legacy um, and how they are following in the footsteps of their parents. The first example I want to talk about here is Prince Durin. Prince Durin has the big confrontation with his father near the end of this episode, and we see his frustration about his dad and his disagreement with his dad's decision, um, and this, of course, leads to a very moving conversation between him and Elrond, in which Elrond is going to be talking about his father. More on that in just a bit. But it leads to this conversation where Durin goes to his dad, and Durin's father, King Durin, mentions um, about how the ancestors, you know, the, the, the dwarvish a- ancestors kind of come to inform you when you put on the crown. I wasn't 100% sure I was follow- following everything that was going on there, and I hope to talk about that a little bit more when hopefully we learn a little bit more about that. But nevertheless, there was a significant sense of of handoff, right? There was this sense of preparation of Prince Durin uh, to take over uh, as king of the dwarves. That uh, whole scene of his father saying that, you know, he he is with him always, especially in anger, right? Um, Really had the sense of preparing Durin uh, to continue. And of course, this was picking up within an episode in which we begin to see Prince Durin really having a vision for his people. Right? His mining of Mithril is clearly connected in his mind with this glorious future that he wants to build for his people. Because you see, Khazad-dûm isn't yet Khazad-dûm. I talked in episode zero about how uh, Khazad-dûm is one of the wonders of the world, one of the marvels of all of Middle-earth. Um, but in the Second Age, you know, we, we should be seeing it at its pinnacle. Right, I talked about that before, but... There's an interesting thing that we see happening over these first few episodes, particularly from episodes two to four. That is, Khazad-dûm is still building. It's not yet at the glory point. It's not yet at its highest point. Um, It's getting there, and Durin has a vision for how it might get there, right? But this whole preparation of him, it felt like he was being prepared to take over from his father as king there at the end. And that seems to me to establish this theme really interestingly. We see it in a couple other important places as well. Muriel, of course, is a very important place. So we see, we don't exactly meet, but we see her father, Tar Palantir, whom I talked about last time, the still technically ruling king of Numenor, and whose position in the history of Numenor is critically important. The king of Numenor who attempted to turn, the last attempt to turn Numenor back from its downfall. Um, and we see Muriel, we got to learn a lot more about Muriel's relationship with that, her shared visions with her father through the Palantir. This knowledge of what is coming, this certain knowledge of the future doom of Numenor, and her desire 
to do, like her father, to try to do something, right, to prevent this. This is clearly why she decides to send Galadriel away at first, because she is trying to prevent. It is known that Galadriel's arrival, right, is the thing that is going to kick off. Like, that's where the visions begin. Um, it's going to kick off this sequence of the destruction of Numenor, and she wants to forestall that somehow, right? But of course, in addition to dealing with the burden, to sharing the burden of her father, Muriel is also trying to separate herself from the legacy of her father, because her father's legacy politically within Numenor is very problematic, right? Very, very difficult indeed. He got kicked out, right? There was almost a complete break between the ruling family and the people of Numenor as a result of the aggressively pro-elf policies, right, of Tar Palantir. Muriel is trying to manage that differently and not follow in her father's footsteps in that way, right, while still somehow accomplishing what he was trying to accomplish. So the very complicated way in which Muriel is trying to find this path that will not just follow in her father's footsteps but do what he failed to do. Um, is a really important element in episode four. Now, Numenor as a whole, of course, when we kind of pan back from Muriel a little bit, Numenor as a whole is dealing with its own legacy, right? Its tradition dating back to the first age. And we see this in a whole bunch of places, right? We get uh, these memories of things which uh, th that recall the gifting of Numenor to the humans in the first place. The Palantiri, right? We see the first Palantir and we know, we're told, these were gifts from the elves to the people of Numenor. Just as Muriel also has explained that the white tree whose petals start falling at the end of episode four is also a tree which is a seedling of the tree of the elves. It has been given to the Numenorians, both of those things, the Palantir and the tree, are physical reminders of the links of Numenor, the, the, their links back to the old world, their links to the elves and the traditions of the past. And then, of course, there's their own heroic history, the deeds they did, the Numenorians, the ancestors of the Numenorians, back in the first age to earn them the island in the first place, right? And we get strong memories of this quite subtly in that conversation, right, leading up to the revelation of the Palantir between Muriel and Galadriel. Um, in that round room up, up at the top, of course, many Tolkien fans were really focusing on this scene because there's some really cool stuff in that room. There's these trophies along the wall. And we see behind Galadriel at one point the sword, Narsil, which will be Elendil's sword, the sword that will be broken uh, and whose whose hilt shards are going to cut the ring off of Sauron's hand. We saw a huge axe on the wall, which I believe to be the axe of Tuor. And then we saw a swan shield, which I believe to be the shield of Tuor as well. Tuor was Erendil's father from Gondolin. So we get these, these relics of the ancient world, right? These relics of the first age, memories of the heroic battles fought by the ancestors of the Numenorians that led up to the founding of Numenor. So once again, there is this sense of the enormous footsteps that the Numenorians themselves are following in, right? Which Muriel plays on politically 
at the end of the episode when she's giving her speech and encouraging everybody to volunteer uh, to come and join with them again to help the people of the Southlands uh, and to fight alongside the elves. And she is trying to recall them to that particular tradition, that they should be, you know, who they should be, the whole Numenorean people, and how they should pursue their legacy from the ancient world. But the last offspring, the last child, the last legacy I want to raise is Elrond. Of course, in the last episode, I talked a lot about Eärendil, the Mariner, um, and I was delighted to find Eärendil mentioned even more frequently in this episode than he was last time. Um, but again, the emphasis shifted from Eärendil as this sort of distant figure looming in the background, like looming over the, uh, over the, the harbor, um, right mentioned in lore uh, by Sadak among the Harfoots. Um, and instead, we got the much more personal connection to Elrond, his son. Elrond himself recalling the story, right? We first get this with Celebrimbor, when Celebrimbor sees Elrond standing by the window and has this sort of flashback, right, where he remembers Eärendil himself and tells Elrond how much he looked like his father in that moment, right? This connection that Celebrimbor establishes between Elrond uh, and Elrond's father um, is sort of the, the first indication that we get to pay careful attention uh, to this particular dynamic, right? And of course, Celebrimbor then goes on to recall the specific prophecy, the specific prediction that um, Eärendil made, that his own fate, Celebrimbor's fate, would one day be in his son Elrond, in, in Eärendil's son Elrond's hands, right? Um, so again, that this sense not only of the connection between Elrond and his father, but of in some sense Elrond following in his father's footsteps some kind of responsibility to do something almost like he did, right, is, is, is lying on Elrond, which is a large and an interesting burden, right? And we can hear this very clearly when he tells Durin the story of Eärendil. Um, and he tells us about how Eärendil uh, took upon himself the voyage to Valinor, and he alone of all mortal kind made it across the sea, went to the Valar and put the position of the elves and men of Middle-earth before the Valar and appealed to them for their mercy and convinced the Valar to send the expeditionary force to Middle-earth, which saved everybody, which defeated Morgoth, right? So um, Eärendil accomplished this great thing and has been placed up in the stars and now drives the evening star across the sky, right? And Elrond clearly feels the weight of that, explicitly says that he feels that he has many, many times failed to live up to the legacy of his father, right? Exactly how this is going to come into play for Elrond, I think, is going to be really, really crucial. Elrond clearly is going to be a very, very important character in this show as we go through. Eärendil is like a kind of focal point. Um, and here I'm speaking um, particularly of Tolkien's works and how he introduces Elrond. Elrond, at the end of the first stage, is like the, the central nexus. He's related to everybody, right? Almost every single storyline, almost every single bloodline and family that we've been hearing stories about in the first age all comes down, Elrond is, there, is the descendant of all of them, right? Um, so in Tolkien's mind, when he invented the character of Elrond, Elrond was always that bridge from the First Age, that nexus of all of the First Age activity, which culminates in the action of his father, right? But which he himself is the memory of moving forward. 
But now in the show, we're also seeing how Elrond is once again in a different way serving as a nexus point. It's Elrond who has personal connections with almost every single plot line, right? He is a close companion of Gilgalad. He's the herald of Gilgalad. He's a close personal friend of Galadriel. He's a close personal friend of uh, Durin the dwarf, right? And is, of course, now assisting and getting to know Celebrimbor too. At the middle of all of the plots that the elves are involved in, Elrond is once again positioned to be this pivotal character that's going to bring together all of these things. And of course, we mustn't forget the oath that he's already sworn to Galadriel, that should her suspicions turn out to be true, he will dedicate the rest of his life in Middle-earth to pursuing the enemy, right? That, too, is sort of looming over him and, again, bringing all of these plots together. So Elrond's responsibility uh, came really clear in this episode, and I thought that that it was really powerful to see that weight resting on Elrond's shoulders, and I think it's going to be a really important context for what we see Elrond doing after this. The biggest visual recollections that we got of the light and darkness theme in in episode four um, was the orcs in the sunlight. I continue to love the emphasis on sunlight and the orcs. Never in any depiction of orcs that I ever remember seeing in any other Tolkien adaptation have I seen such an interesting and consistent focus on the aversion of orcs to the sun. And this was a, there were several moments uh, in this episode where we saw that dramatized really starkly. My favorite image uh, from the episode, my favorite single visual image uh, of the light and darkness in this episode was when Rowan, Theo's friend, uh, who sort of grudgingly came back to the village to help him scavenge for food, uh, is taking off right after Theo has disappeared into the inn uh, and is undoubtedly in trouble already, right? But uh, Rowan takes off with his little wheelbarrow because the sun is going in under a cloud, right? Um, And we see him running off up the hill with the shadow of the cloud, right, following behind him and the whole scene divided into light and darkness as as the darkness is pursuing him. So cool. And again, a really wonderful way of just sort of visually demonstrating um, the onset of darkness, right? Remember that in the Lord of the Rings, that pall of darkness that covers over the land as Sauron's armies invade are, of course, is of course designed to protect his orcs from the sunlight, um, but also, of course, becomes this uh, this dominant image. Um, the shadow, right? The shadow and the shadow extending and reaching out over the land is one of the primary metaphors for for Sauron, for the Dark Lord, through the Lord of the Rings. So again, I think we we get this really fun recollection of that there in that scene. But of course, we also get very dramatically um, the coming of the dawn when Arondir and Bronwyn and Theo are running away from the orcs, right? Them being caught on the fringes of the forest there as the sun appears and bathes the clearing in light, right? And uh, the orcs, and they're safe from the orcs. The orcs just can't run out into that much sunlight in open space in order to get them. Um, So I love these reminders that we're being given, uh, that light and darkness mean something, right? Um, However, as you'll recall, the light and darkness theme that I've been focusing on is not primarily about literal light and darkness, um, but of course from the first episode, the paradigm that Galadriel established through her discussion of the boat and and the stone, 
right, is about, about the choices of what you do. It's, it's, it's about choices, right? Where you're going, what you're looking at, right? Are you looking up or are you looking down? Are you being deceived by a false light or are you looking up at the real light, right? And I think that we can see several places where that kind of thing is coming into play during episode four. One that really jumped out at me was the mithril, right? In particular, as soon as he sees it, um, uh, Elrond notes that the mithril catches the light in a really interesting way, right? It almost looks like it's lit from within. Um, The glowing mithril, we saw the glow from inside the casket, right? And mithril always seemed to be the most logical conclusion for what must be in that casket. Um, And yet, Mithril, it's, it, you know, uh, it, there's no reference in, in, uh, uh, in the book to mithril glowing, though I suppose the ore might be different from the finished metal that's used, for instance, to, um, you know, make uh, male shirts that hobbits wear. Um, so you don't, we don't necessarily have to imagine that this would mean that Frodo's male shirt would glow in the dark necessarily. Um, but anyway, I, I really like the way that they depicted Mithril as being almost luminous. For one thing, the way that it connects, the, the way that the idea of Mithril kind of glowing, the Mithril ore anyway, kind of glowing from within, the way that that parallels it to the Arkenstone from The Hobbit, the heart of the mountain, this luminous gem um, that is the most precious thing that was found in Erebor, um, I, I kind of liked, especially knowing the sort of obsessive desire for the Arkenstone that Thorin has in the Hobbit book, right? Which kind of sets us up for the slightly obsessive secrecy that Durin is keeping the Mithril in, right? We can see that the Mithril is to Durin, to Prince Durin, sort of a parallel to the Arkenstone in that way. So that's one thing that I liked about it. Also, of course, it recalls the Silmarils, the great, the great gems, right? The three gems of Feanor, which glow with the light of the trees and which Morgoth captured. We heard about this back in episode one and two. We heard about Feanor making them. We heard about Morgoth stealing them. Um, so, again, there's, I'm not saying there's a direct parallel or, or an explicit link between Durin's Mithril and the Silmarils, but certainly this idea of something very precious, something, uh, you know, the, the, the most desirable of things, right? Um, to Durin, again, it seems to kind of fill that niche, so that seemed to me appropriate. And not only that, but the jealousy of his guarding it, right, as well. Um, but of course, in addition, it's not just the glowingness, right? It's, it's, not, it's not just the glow of the mithril um, that I think is really important here. It also is clearly leading Durin himself towards an interesting choice, right? Is it the right thing uh, to mine the mithril? But it's very dangerous to mine, right? So we'll come back and talk about this uh, in a little bit when we discuss a different theme. Um, and yet, there's clearly a question, what is right to be done, right? In the difference between Durin and his father on this, um, what is the right path that the dwarves should be following, that Prince Durin should be leading the dwarves of Khazad-dûm um, on? Um, so again, I think that the mithril is the beginning of where we're beginning to see those choices played out. And that's why I think, in addition to the glow of mithril, I think it's, it's uh, a really interesting illustration of this theme. In addition, of course, we have Muriel, and Muriel's choice is, I think, the most clear, right? Her decision between what's she going to do? Is she going to follow Galadriel, or is she going to give in to the political pressure, 
right? Is she going to make nice with Farazan and the rest of the people and um, not give in? We see that tension right away in episode four, right? The very first thing she does when she wakes up from her dream, summon the elf, right? She's going to talk to Galadriel about what Galadriel wants. And we immediately see the anxiety in the people of Numenor, right? They, them knowing the elf is talking to the queen and, oh my goodness, what's going to come of this, right? Now, Muriel decides initially she's going to do the safe thing and she's going to try to uh, uh, do this different thing, to uh, different from her father, I mean, to fend off the downfall of Numenor. The choice, that, as Galadriel puts it, is the choice between fear and faith. Is she going to act out of fear for what the people will do and say, or is she going to act out of faith and do what she believes to be right, even though it may be unpopular? Um, she initially decides one way, and then she has that dramatic turning point when she physically turns around, right, when the petals of the tree start falling. And she takes, clearly, takes this as a sign and makes a different choice, right? So, um, and the question is, is that right or is that wrong, right? Probably right. I think it's a good thing that she did, um, and yet it's clearly going to be complicated, right? What direction is she going? Um, what light is she following? Is she, she's following Galadriel's light. Well, that's good, right? Probably that's good. Probably that's good. Galadriel continues to be really complicated, and she's the one I want to end with here. Um, we have seen this light and darkness theme has been Galadriel's theme from the beginning. This primary theme, is she, what, what's she doing? Is she doing the right thing? Is she uh, she's touching the darkness. Is that has she yet touched the darkness? Is it going to help her to understand to tell the true light from the reflected light? Um, I am not at all convinced that Galadriel is yet headed in a positive direction. Um, by the end of episode three, I was wondering if Galadriel was heading towards some kind of crash. Actually, um, now things kind of seem to turn around a little bit. Galadriel, where Galadriel ends up. In, uh, in episode four, in that conversation with Muriel in particular, seems really good, seems really positive. And we know she's not wrong about Sauron's return, right? She's correct to be vigilant about that. Sauron is building his forces, and they do need to intervene before it's too late. She's not wrong about any of those things, and yet I am still not at all convinced that Galadriel either knows what's really going on or that what she's doing is really a great idea um, and is really going to be leading everybody in the right direction. Um, she is leading with great confidence, but as I say, I'm still not positive that Galadriel is running in the right direction. Now, of course, the biggest reference to death and mortality that we have in episode four is the drowning of Numenor, right? That was kind of a big deal. It's kind of funny, actually. So when I was doing episode zero of Rings and Realms, and I was giving, remember, the overview of what happens in the Second Age and everything, um, we had kind of a debate as to whether I should talk about the drowning of Numenor. Because on the one hand, it's pretty well established, right? It's not exactly a spoiler. Uh, it's been out there for a long time, but I actually held off on it because we didn't know how they were going to play it in the show. And so just in case in the show they were going to, um, you know, build up to it and have it be a big sort of su surprising reveal, 
I didn't say anything about it, right? Um, so imagine my surprise when at the beginning of episode four of season one, um, we not only got references to the downfall of Numenor, uh, but we actually saw it depicted on screen. Just amazing. I found that I was, I, I, my breath was really taken away when the great wave was coming over and we were seeing all of Numenor crumble. Um, really, really cool stuff. But what this means is that this issue of mortality, large, like the, 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 the mortality of the entire culture, right, is now looming over this storyline explicitly, right? I think it's, I, 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 I agree with that decision. I think that's a really, really good call. Um, it's a central part of the idea of Tolkien's story from the beginning. However, um, it is going to have a really big impact. We know now that Numenor is doomed, right? And so that, I think, is going to really impact how we look at what Numenor does for the rest of the show. So that was certainly the biggest thing that we see. But even within Numenor, we begin to hear the rumbling. So I mentioned again before that the major issue for the Numenorians was, you know, what is, um, uh, what's, what's going to happen? Like death, right? Um, death and immortality. Um, and them grudging the immortality of the Valar and the elves and wanting to go to the undying lands themselves. We've not heard anything prior to episode four um, that sounded anything like that, actually. We can see certain dysfunctions or incipient dysfunctions in Numenorean society, and yet um, we didn't hear anybody grumbling about old age or grumbling about death, right? But we got the first hints of it in episode four. In the marketplace scene, when the, uh, the, the, the smith that, um, you know, Halbrand, uh, you know, head-butted and beat his face against the wall in the previous episode, um, when he is, uh, you know, doing his rabble-rousing thing, right? Um, notice what he's imagining might be the negative outcome, right? Um, an elf has come to Numenor, and she's been welcomed and accepted. Does that mean more elves? are going to come to Numenor, and notice immediately where his imagination goes. He imagines the differences between them, mortal craftsmen, and the elves, right? Um, what about when the elves come and their craftsmen who have been training for centuries and centuries, right, and who don't tire, and who don't sleep, and who never die, right? Um, this, you can feel the sort of... Uh, you know, that feeling of inadequacy, right? The inferiority complex of the mortal looking up at the immortal with envy and with grudging, right? Now, that scene in some ways is really naive, and I think it's supposed to come across as naive. Um, Farazan himself comes out and immediately chides them and turns them in, an, in another direction. We'll talk about that later on. But, um, but nevertheless, in that funny kind of naive reaction, we can still, we can see the first seeds that we have heard of this, we are coming from a mortal perspective and we kind of grudge the fact that we don't have all the advantages that the immortals have. So we'll see what grows from those seeds over the next episodes. But the main thing I want to emphasize here is Durin and his choice. I referenced this earlier on, um, but this is what I think is, uh, was most interesting to me in the story of Durin in episode four, and that is the choice that he's making in mining for Mithril. He freely admits that it's perilous to mine Mithril. 
we don't know exactly why. We see that the, the mine shaft collapse, right? So um, apparently it's physically dangerous. There's something unstable about where the mithril veins are. And so therefore, by choosing to mine the mithril, he is choosing to put individual dwarves in danger. He clearly does this because he has a vision for his people. For, for, for the dwarves, for Khazad-dum as a whole, this is going to be a great thing that's going to open up a great big future, right? But in order to do that, he has to risk the lives of individual dwarves, which clearly he cares about, right? As he himself goes uh, charging down into the newly collapsed mine, right, to try to help rescue the four dwarves that are imprisoned down there, right? So this choice between the safety of his people, which his father chooses, right? His father says, we're going to shut down this vein because it's not, it's not worth it. It's not safe. We're putting at risk everybody who goes down into that mine, so let's just not do it, right? Prince Durin, on the other hand, is really, really frustrated, right? Because he th- sees that for what he feels to be overcaution, right, this overcautious prioritization of the immediate safety of the dwarves' mining, it is sacrificing this great and glorious future for his people as a whole, for Khazad-dum as a whole. So remember back in episode zero, I talked about how I think how the death and mortality theme is going to play in with the dwarves is not going to be about them individually, wishing they could live longer or something like that. Um, We have seen the tension between Durin and Elrond because of their different life expectancies, right? However, I think the death and mortality theme really comes to play with the dwarves in the way that they're thinking about their future, their home, um, their kingdom, right? And to make, to to build and to sustain that um, and let that last into perpetuity. Um, And I think that we can really begin to see this. We, We see Durin making risky decisions, right? And thinking about how can he... Um, how can he create this great future for his people? What choices is he going to be willing to make? And of course, a big question for down the road, how are the rings of power going to factor into that? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of healing going on in episode four, I have to admit. In fact, really what I would want to talk about here is wounding instead of healing. Hopefully setting up healing to come, um, certainly showing the need for it. Um, First, I want to talk about Theo. Now, of course, Theo begins his episode inside the Elvish Watchtower, and the problem that we have is the people's hunger. Right? They just, they just don't have enough food. They weren't able to bring everything with them when they left because they left not knowing whether or not the orcs were going to descend on them at any moment, right? So they're poorly supplied there in the old elf watchtower. Theo undertakes to solve this problem, right? So he wants to, he wants to help. He has an idea, a bold idea, uh, for how they can get some more food. Let's go back and get some of the food that we left behind, right? That seems simple enough. Um, so we see him working to solve some of the people's problems, but of course this leads him to get wounded um, twice significantly uh, in this episode, right? Once, of course, just hit the slash in the leg uh, by the orc who discovers him, right, in the little scuffle that he has with the orc in the inn. But much more seriously, the wound that he gives himself, right, when he pulls out the evil sword hilt and jabs it into his own forearm so that it can drink his blood and form the blade, right? Um, And um, 
of course, we see the scar on Waldrig's uh, arm, uh, you know, the old innkeeper's arm later on, um, so that we see that in wounding himself in this particular way, Theo has now marked himself, right? Marked himself in a way that this other guy who is clearly fairly pro-Sauron, right? Waldreg, the old innkeeper, um, is himself already marked and wounded, right? So this sense of Theo wounding himself more than just physically with that wound in the forearm and that he's really taken a step by, um, by for the first time, not just deliberately calling forth the blade of the sword, but sacrificing his own blood, right? Injuring himself in order to do it. This is not a good sign. I've been saying I'm worried about Theo and I'm more worried about him than ever before. Some serious healing is needed here and I'm going to see I'm going to be very interested to see how Arondir is involved with that. Arondir of course saves his life um, when he's about to be uh, to be wounded even more grievously, right? Notice it's that same arm that the orc catches and is about to cut off that hand, right? Um, so the place where the orc is about to to, to slash with his own knife is the place where, uh, where Theo has just wounded himself, right? And from that wound, the orc cutting off his hand, Arondir saves Theo. Is Arondir going to help to be able to help to, to, to preserve or restore Theo in some way? I guess we'll have to see. Um, the other place where we see the need of healing is in the king's decline. Um, as I've mentioned, the figure of Tar Palantir is a really important idea in episode three. We don't see the king. He never appears on screen in episode three. In episode four, we finally meet him to find that he is in significant decline, right? He is, uh, is, is, is ill. He's bedridden. Um, and this seems like an important symbol for Numenor itself, right? There is this sense that the declining life of the king maps onto the decline of Numenor itself. Um, I was thinking rather ominous thoughts when we got that big shot at the end, the, the big top-down shot of the bed of the king in the top of the tower, um, which I was kind of joking looked like the Tar Palantir death cam, right? I was expecting that we were going to be seeing him expire there on camera at the end of the episode. I don't think we saw that. I think he's still alive. Um, all we were seeing was his suffering, right? His suffering in conjunction with the tears of the Valar, right? With the sprinkling of the blossoms from outside. Um, but, it's, but I think that I, I'm not really expecting any healing to come uh, to Tar Palantir. But again, I think that clearly his, his not wounding, but his, his, his illness, his decline, I think is very important symbolically. Um, Muriel, however, is one who can clearly obtain healing. Like Galadriel, she needs healing not physically, but mentally, emotionally, right? She and Galadriel corresponding with each other. That wonderful scene where Galadriel and Muriel are facing each other across the Palantir. They step away from the Palantir, right, without that between them, and talk to each other. The fear and faith conversation, right? And we can see Galadriel sees the likeness between the two of them when she says that she knows what it's like to be the only one who sees, right? Um, so it's good that Muriel and Galadriel have each other in that way, right? But I think it indicates both of them, both of them are in need. Both of them are very, very far from being at peace. Um, so again, hopefully more healing to come there uh, with Muriel and Galadriel. 
Isildur royally screws things up in this episode, right? He has that moment on the ship where he's once again hearing that mysterious call, which seems to be coming from the Menaltarma, and I'm still looking forward to finding out more about that. But he makes the decision that he's going to get himself kicked out, right? We see him deliberately dropping the rope. However, um, not only does he succeed in getting himself kicked out, he gets his two best friends kicked out of the service as well, and he's forced to face these consequences. Now, I think that this is a very important instance of the theme of friendship, not just because we see that Isildur's relationship with his friends is very important to him, but we see the way in which people are tied together even beyond what they believe. Isildur thinks he's making a choice just for himself, but it turns out he's making a choice on behalf of his friends. What affects him ends up affecting his friends too. And this kind of connection among people in friendship and in fellowship is something that's an important idea, I think, in Tolkien. And I think that this is an idea that we're beginning to see really come into emphasis here in episode four. Um, By the way, one small note about Isildur's friends, which is a really uh, nice kind of overlay. Um, Isildur's best friend, the guy with the curly brown hair, is named Valandil. And this is important because people who know Tolkien will remember that Valandil is the name of Isildur's last son. He has four sons. His fourth son is named Valandil, and Valandil is indeed the one who becomes king after him. It's Valandil that Aragorn ultimately is descended from. So as he's interacting with Valandil, I can't, his, as Isildur's interacting with his friend Valandil, I can't help but remember all the time, every time his name comes up, that Isildur is going to name his own son after this guy uh, in future times. Um, so that's always a fun kind of context uh, to place their friendship in. However, the biggest scene that I thought was most impactful, that was really, I think, the, deep, the most deeply moving scene in the whole episode. I've watched the episode now four times, and I have teared up every single time I have seen this scene. And it's the overlap scene. As Arondir and Bronwyn and Theo are escaping, the marvelous music uh, as they're escaping through the woods and come out into the sunlight and the sun rises and it's so gorgeous and the song begins, right? Which turns out to be Disa's song. Disa's song as she's singing to the rocks. But it turns out, right, we've seen that in trailers, right, the the shot of her singing to the rocks. Um, We could even hear the song on the soundtrack if you you got the soundtrack. Um, But seeing those things together and learning in the context of the episode that this is not just a song uh, to resonate a chamber, as she describes in episode two, where, you know, uh, in that part of that uh, getting to know you experience with the mountain, right? And, and finding out where are the best places to dig and what they should do and all that kind of thing. No, it's a much more personal appeal than that, right? It turns out that the song that she sings is uh, uh, imploring the stone, right? Imploring the stone to release the miners alive. She's, inter- she's interceding on the part of the trapped dwarvish miners, not to mention, of course, also her husband, who is in there trying to get them out, right? Um, so she is interceding with the mountain um, on behalf of those that are, you know, their friends, that are their kin, right, in order to ask the mountain uh, to come out. And that overlay between the two, right? Um, Disa singing, trying to preserve the dwarves, which, by the way, works. 
they all do, in fact, escape. The mountain listens to Disa, apparently, right? But the way that, that, that her song is overlaid over the escape of Arondir and Bronwyn and Theo, I found deeply, deeply moving. Um, that we can see the three of them coming together, right? Not only Arondir finding Theo and saving his life several times, right, as they're, as they're escaping, and then Bronwyn, uh, you know, tracking down to try to find Theo, right, and running into them, uh, you know, them meeting in the opposite direction, and the three of them together escaping. The three of them together just finding safety while Disa's song for the safety of the other miners overlays it. As I say, I found that uh, a really, really powerful, sort of the most powerful distillation of the friendship theme in this whole episode. However, still, I think the very most prominent friendship, relationship in this whole show so far has been between Durin and Elrond, right? Now, I believe Elrond to be quite sincere in his declarations of friendship for Durin, right? There has always been a kind of question about that. That is, Durin suspects him. When he comes back, why did you come, right? Remember, he's always saying things like, ah, so now we see why you really came, right? He doesn't believe that Elrond just came in order to um, visit his friend, right? Even though Elrond continues to insist that that's his primary reason. Of course, we know he did, in fact, have another reason, right? And it's not, he's not hiding that, right? But there's, there's this question that looms over it. Surely Elrond's friendship with Durin is sincere, and yet there's another element at play for Elrond. And yet the relationship with the dwarves and getting the dwarves' assistance is part of him performing his craft, as he says to Celebrimbor in episode two, right? And his craft is diplomacy, politics. And we see Elrond many times making flowery speeches and saying fancy things, not out of insincerity, I think, but again, I, you know, we've talked about this before, how a lot of his uh, flowery speeches have been challenged, right? Um, and he has shifted, he's had been most effective, certainly with Durin, when he has been more personal and more, more honest, right? So again, that tension there, I think, comes to a really interesting crisis point in episode four with the very ominous oath that Durin compels Elrond to take before he will tell him about the Mithril. Durin makes a big deal of this. I need your oath on this. Now, I've mentioned before, when you start talking about oaths to elves in Tolkien's work, it's a big deal, right? Tolkien readers, people who know the Silmarillion will start twitching when you start mentioning oaths that need to be taken, right? Elrond agrees to this, and he takes the oath. Now, the terms of the oath are really significant and, as I said, I think fairly ominous. Um, Durin says that he's never to breathe so much as a whisper of what he's about to tell him, right? And Elrond promises that it will end in his ears, right? But here's the important thing. Durin says, if you break your promise, the power of this stone, that is the mountain that is standing witness to this oath, the power of, break your promise and the power of this stone will doom you and your kin to sorrow to your last day on Middle-earth. Uh, this power of this stone will doom you and your kin to sorrow till your last day on Middle-earth. And I have to tell you, 
I have a bad feeling about this oath. And the reason I have a bad feeling about this oath, I know that that curse is going to come to pass. Elrond is going to experience sorrow until the end of his last day on Middle-earth. And one of his first sorrows is going to be what happens to his wife. So we're jumping ahead in the sequence here a bit, but down the road, Elrond is going to marry Celebrian, the daughter of Galadriel. Now, I do not know that Galad, that Celebrian is born yet in this show. I don't know how the, the chronology is going to work. Has she even met, you know, has she even married Celeborn yet? We have been given nothing about that in this show so far. But someday, Elrond is going to marry Celebrian. And Tolkien says that Celebrian is going to be captured by orcs, and she's going to be tortured, and she's going to be poisoned, and she's never going to recover from the trauma of that experience. Even after she is physically healed by Elrond, she is still going to languish until she eventually has to go back to Valinor, has to take ship and leave Middle-earth forever and be parted from Elrond for the rest of his time in Middle-earth so that she can get healed. And Elrond will spend the rest of his days in Middle-earth separated from his wife. And where does this happen? Elrond's wife is kidnapped by orcs and tortured in that same mountain that Prince Durin calls in witness of this oath. So, as I say, I have a bad feeling about this oath. I suspect that for some reason, which Elrond is doubtless going to think a very good and important reason, he is in fact going to whisper something of what he has learned there from Durin, and this oath is going to come back upon him. So, um, I am going to continue to watch with great interest the development of the friendship between Elrond and Durin and to see how Elrond comes in the end, I hope, uh, to balance or perhaps choose between diplomacy and politics on the one hand and the sincerity of his friendship with Durin on the other. So in episode four, we got a chance meeting, a proclamation of inescapable doom, and supernatural intervention. So I'd say we have the fate theme pretty well covered in this episode. Our chance meeting, of course, um, I'm referring to the meeting between Arondir and Theo, when Arondir shows up in the nick of time to rescue Theo from certain death, or at least certain maiming at the hands of his orc captor. Um, and this is the kind of thing, this, this kind of chance, Arondir... Uh, coming back, you know, he was released and sent back and that he comes through at just this time to save Theo is a, the kind of coincidental meeting um, that I frankly expect to see uh, in this kind of context, in the, the way in which we see these chance meetings coming up. Um, in The Hobbit, for instance, Tolkien uh, really heaps up the coincidences, and his narrator is continually drawing attention to how one coincidence after another, one event after another, has led, especially misfortunate events, apparently, has led to exactly the outcome that was supposed to happen. So uh, we'll see about that. But the two big ones um, were certainly the proclamation of doom, right? The vision in the Palantir of the downfall of Numenor. Um, 
I've mentioned before how I think this is, this is really going to have a major impact on our understanding of the whole Numenor story, right? But I think that it is really, really important, really interesting that they have integrated that into the story from this point. We know that Numenor is falling. It is part of the premise of the Numenor story. Um, and that sense that you, you can't fight against doom. If you try to fight against doom, against destiny in this way, it's almost certain to backfire. So apparently the cycle of doom is kicked off by the arrival of Galadriel in Numenor, according to her father's prophecy. Um, and she thinks she can just forestall that by shipping Galadriel back off again and hoping nobody noticed or something, right? Um, that, that kind of attempt to forestall doom has a really low percentage of success in Tolkien's works. Um, so I was quite glad that she turned around. But the moment of her turning around is really the biggest moment um, of, in the fate theme for me in this episode. Um, when the petals of the tree, which are known to the faithful as the tears of the Valar, that's not original in Tolkien's work. That's, that's, that's uh, a new thing from the show. But I love it. I love that link through the tree back to, uh, back to the Valar themselves, right? Um, but here's what I loved about that moment most of all. When we get, there are a few times in The Lord of the Rings when we get evidence of clear supernatural influence. Um, the biggest of these, I believe, is the wind from the sea that comes up from the south at Minas Tirith at the Battle of Pelennor Field. And our attention is drawn to this at several times, at several points, right? When the Rohirrim are coming in and they're, just about to charge onto the battlefield and Theoden sees the battlefield and there's this moment of temptation when he might turn and leave, right? But then they all smell this, the, the, the wind from the sea, the change, right, that is coming and they're all heartened by it and they charge into the battle. They also uh, can, uh, can smell the change in the sea air um, from the city, but also, of course, this same wind from the sea which is breaking up the darkness, right, and bringing the sun out on the Battle of Pelennor Field is also wafting the sails of Aragorn's ships. Legolas says later that if it hadn't been for that sudden wind that came from the south, they surely would not have made it to the battle in time uh, to, to, to turn the tides, right? Um, this is a great example in Tolkien's work of divine intervention, probably the, the intervention of the Valar themselves. I suspect the hand of Banway who is in charge of the winds uh, in that wind from the sea. But it's very important that it's not, it not only comes in at this pivotal moment, right, to give this sort of signal, to give this unexpected help out of nowhere, but also it doesn't in any way override the choices of people. The coolest thing about the fate and, uh, the, the, the fate and destiny idea in Tolkien is that he pairs it always with the free choices of the characters. So both of those things, both the intervention of the divine and the choices that are made by the individual characters, both matter equally and both come together in order to make the story what it is. And we see exactly that dynamic at the end of episode four. Muriel has made her choice. She's made her wrong choice. Galadriel's already on her way off to the boat, right? And she is turning away, uh, and she's walking away, and then the petals start falling, right? This signal 
this sign to her is given. And that's the moment of divine intervention, right? Of supernatural intervention, the tears of the Valar begin falling. This reminder that the Valar are watching, right? And what does she do? Muriel responds. She then makes her choice. Um, so once again, her choice is it's triggered. It's in a sense almost empowered by this sign, this supernatural intervention. And yet it's her own choice. And we see how her choices and I'll be talking about this a little bit later, Farazan's choices, um, which are going to steer now Numenor in this completely different direction. So it was a really exciting episode. Um, I really feel like we're starting to get a bit more momentum behind the show now. Um, I didn't think we would get to that point until five or six, but I'm starting to feel like much more engagement with the things that are happening. Um, lots of ground covered and many scenes that I was really excited by. Um, I loved the dwarves singing to the mountains, um, anything involving Disa and Durin and their kind of quick wit. Uh, with Elrond or, or on, on their own with each other is just really lovely. Um, got to see a bit more about Adar. Uh, I had a little bit of issue with Adar, but mostly intrigue. Um, and some of my issue is, is just kind of the standard, of course, he's disfigured. And I know there is lore and history behind that, but I'm getting a little tired of the bad guy always being <laughs> some kind of disfiguration. Um, and I thought there would be a bigger shock value because it was the last shot of episode three and he was out of focus. Um, we could kind of already tell he was an elf shape. So the reveal of an elf was not that shocking to me. Um, but it was still, you know, good to see kind of some more forward progression and assume that he's kind of our big bad for this, for this episode. Um, yeah, I don't want to just focus on things that irk me, but I have to say there are a few things that I'm starting to be a little bit like, hmm. So we'll talk about that in Other Minds and Hands. But I want to spend some time um, in this section going through timeline discussion um, and then a couple of brief things about shots and a couple of Easter eggs that I'm sure you've noticed, but I, would, I want to place into context of the things that we're talking about in this episode. So timeline. We've had so many questions about the timeline, and we did touch on it in Other Minds and Hands, but I want to summarize it here in just kind of a, a concise way to think about the compression of this timeline. So a lot of people are very angry that things are happening different than they happen in Tolkien's timeline. I shouldn't just say angry. It's more like confusion, but so-and-so wasn't born yet, and this hasn't happened, and how was that supposed to exist in the same space? Totally get it. That's, you know, you know a timeline and this is bucking it and that is making you feel very like shaken and ah, that's not how it is. And that can be really unnerving. That can be really unsettling. Um, what I would say though is if you were watching a film that was sticking to the timeline, it would be so boring. <laughs> it would be so boring. Uh, so one of the things to just consider with this is what they have to accomplish. I said it early on, um, in other minds and hands about the process of adaptation. Things will change. It's inevitable. I would love to see a 37 hour episode of, of you know one chapter so I have all the detail but we don't really have time for that and the pacing can't quite fit that. So we have to make decisions. So we basically have to make a list of the action points and know where those actions have to drive us forward. So it's action points, where are we going? Action point, where are we going? Action point, where are we going? Line all those up in a giant list and then try to make it work. It's a really clever like math formula almost, right? How do I make this work? Um, and I do think they're doing a very good job of that. It can be disconcerting, totally give you that, completely agree. Um, but 
you know, the example we gave on Other Minds and Hands was uh, Corey's wife is an ER doctor and they used to watch the TV show ER and she said, yeah, these things would happen in an ER, but over the course of like three months, you wouldn't get all those things in one evening. Sure, it could happen, um, but it's not likely that every episode, <laughs> you know, would be that. And same with any kind of crime drama. They compress their own timelines to make these things work. You don't usually get DNA results in a few hours. You usually have to wait a few months but we compress that because we need a conclusion to this episode. Any historical drama, any war film that you've ever seen, anything like that, they will have compressed the timeline because we don't have four years to watch a Civil War film. We need it done in 90 to 120 minutes usually. So you have to do a compression. This is no different. Um, and somebody did ask, is it because of Tolkien's bloated timeline that we're in this situation? It's not a bloated timeline, it's the history of a, a world. So we're talking about multiple thousands of years, and we don't want to see thousands of years. I mean, maybe we want to spend that time in Middle Earth, sure, that's fun. But we don't really want to see that in an arc of a story. We want to see action. Otherwise, we're just watching farmers till their crops and grass grow for a really long time. <laughs> and we don't really have the budget or time to do that. Um, and definitely, most of our audience would stop watching. So we've got to compress to those action points. Plus there's that other thing that most people have been bringing up about the casting. Um, the human characters would have to be recast every episode because they would have died. You know, we're covering so much time here that we're just smushing it all together. So yeah, just things to keep in mind. We are seeing that compression, but that compression is quite beneficial in this instance. It can be a little jarring, I grant you that, but take a deep breath and say, interesting way to handle that. I'm glad I didn't have to sit here for three years to get to that next point. They could do that. And so far, I think it's worked. There's been a few things that I'm kind of like, ooh, ooh. But for the most part, nothing is a loose end. Nothing is left hanging. It It's working. It makes sense. Um, so yeah, so that's just what I want to say about timeline. Understand, deep breath, it's got to happen. Um, I'm thrilled we get 50 hours in Middle Earth. I know most people would want 5,000 hours in Middle Earth, um, but we don't really have the time to cover these this millennia <laughs> like that on screen. Um, another thing I want to talk about is some of the art references that we've seen, um, particularly in this episode, uh, and some of the political historical references as well. Um, and specifically, one was Farazan when he's giving his speech in the courtyard. Um, which I think was quite political and quite interesting that, you know, this guy that he was talking to earlier, who was all buddy-buddy in the throne room with this guy, um, or maybe it was the court, not a throne room, but at the very beginning when they were talking to Galadriel, he was like buddy-buddy with him, and then it's that guy that starts this debate, and then Farazan swoops in and makes this inspirational speech, so I kind of wonder if it was almost a plant that he was in the right place at the right time. Um, but visually that scene was really interesting because we have him kind of lurking back with the commoners and saying how important it is. So you see this, uh, man of the people kind of idea. And then he goes into the middle of the crowd, just listening and then speaks up. So again, man of the people speaking up, I have calluses on my hand. We will be the workers. You know, the mural behind him is very focused on labor and hard work. And then he steps onto a stage. So it just felt very progressive of like, work, work of the people, of the people, and now look at me. And then when he stands up on that, that level platform and the pillars behind him in this perfect framing section, it reminded me of this image I saw of Mussolini giving a speech. Um, I don't remember what year, 1930s uh, sometime, but it was, it was in front of a statue of Julius Caesar and just very iconic of commanding a crowd. Um, and I don't know if they took that reference point, but you can't help but kind of have like, Ooh, Julius Caesar, idea in the back of your mind and et tu brute and um 
but all those references, I think, to Roman political speeches and grasping power, but also being quite careful with it was very interesting. Um, so I enjoyed how that shot was was done and the visuals of that courtyard, just very Romanesque, very straight, straight strict lines um, that you can see architecture is a real focus of this community. The other one that was pointed out to me on Twitter um, was the comparison of some of the uh, visuals of the women, Galadriel and Muriel in particular, to 19th century paintings. And there's loads out there, I'm sure there's lots of examples, but the point that I loved about that, and you can go to my Twitter if you want to see the, the retweet, um, but it was specifically about the reference points, and I loved that you could tell there was some sort of familiarity with their artistic design. So even if I'm looking at this new character that I'm unfamiliar with as a casual Tolkien fan, I'm going to have this reference point in my mind of some sort of uh, painting of a Roman queen or empress or a 16th century um, high-ranking uh, woman in, in beautiful brocade clothing and um, just ethereal kind of beauty. It was just a really nice reference point, the images that they found. So it was 19th century romantic type art, but the, the comparison to those two women in Rings of Power was just really striking. So I liked that there was probably some pretty heavy concept art into how to design their costume, their look, um, their hair even, the hair pieces. Uh, and having that reference point just kind of places it in a bit more of a historical context. We can believe that this actually happened because that's not too far off the mark from what we're quasi-familiar with in our own real-world existence. Um, so yeah, I definitely enjoyed that that reference point. Um, and then just a few visual cues that were that were really interesting to pick up on too. And uh, you know, things like Muriel um, at the after the wave dream, which man, that wave shot. <laughs> um, we were just saying that that was like one of the first moments where you just took a step back and didn't analyze it. I just watched it. It, it was just beautiful. So really excellent CG, which I did love because I'm, I am struggling a little bit with some of the imagery, specifically of Numenor in the daylight. It looks like a Thomas Kincaid painting. It's all very bright and cheery, which isn't bad. It's just a bit, um, I don't know, it feels a bit constructed um, and not necessarily authentic sometimes. And it's just down to lighting, I think, for the most part. A few of the bits do look like set pieces instead of real life. Um, the prison in particular and the, um, I don't know what they're called, <laughs> the technical term, but the, the piece of wood that the sail hangs on horizontally um, on the, the ship. It just looked too clean and tidy and uh, overly Disney-fied, if that makes sense. So there's a few bits that I'm kind of struggling with visually. But that wave was just incredible. <laughs> and then the last thing I want to talk about is that scene 42 minutes in with the Palantir with Galadriel and Muriel. Excuse me, I thought it was just absolutely incredible. Um, really stunning work between the two ladies um, and their script I thought was fantastic. There have been some really questionable dialogue moments and a lot of things that just don't necessarily fit this level of high fantasy for me. Sometimes it feels almost a little... I don't know what I would try to write of high fantasy when I was in high school, but very rarely, most of it I've been thrilled with. Um, the speech she gives at the end talking about the valor of their people and is it buried with the men in the ground or is there some still left? Just inspiring and really stunning and beautifully paced. And I loved it in our Twitter conversation um, with Cynthia, um, who plays Mario, who was talking about that moment and how she filmed it multiple different ways. Oh, I would love to hear the different processes they went through and how they came to what they ended up choosing for the final edit. Um, because I thought it was beautifully delivered, really strong. The cadence was really gorgeous, which would also be interesting to speak to Leith about <laughs> to see if that, that worked its way in there. Um, so, so many different things of production that was, that was really interesting there. But the Palantir scene, 
loved the dialogue and loved how it was set up. It was an incredibly dark room. They went up a staircase to get to it, so it already feels a bit separate. Um, incredibly dark, tall pillars. Things are well-framed, well-structured. There's one beautiful shot that's very symmetrical. You have Galadriel directly across from Mariel with the palantir between them and the symbol behind them and the pillars rising up on either side. And it just feels like you can tell what's at stake in that moment. It's like, whew, here we are. Um, and the focus on the palantir itself, if you look at those shots, they're up shots looking up into the faces of the ladies um, with the palantir really huge in the foreground. So it takes up, you know, it dominates the screen. Um, however, it's out of focus. The focus is still on the women behind them. So we have this kind of suggestion that the Palantir itself is a little bit vague and uncertain, right? The focus is on the certain woman standing there strongly, proudly, and I loved that. But then we have this dominating thing that is really, ooh, concerning. <laughs> um, I also really liked the actual effect of the Palantir when she places her hand onto it and we see the crack starting in the Palantir that spread past its bounds into the frame itself, thereby bringing us into the Palantir. Absolutely stunning. Really beautiful effect and a gorgeous way to bring us in. The same way I was talking about the lens flare and the rainbow and things like that in the last one. It's these things that kind of break the fourth wall, but in more of a, it could just happen in real life suggestion that brings you closer to the story. So I really liked that with the Palantir effect that it brought me into it. And I felt like I was seeing the same thing um, that both of them had seen in that Palantir. So many more things. <laughs> There's so many more things with this. Um, the last thing I will leave you on is, is the list of Easter eggs, um, specifically in that room, um, that are all over Twitter um, and, and YouTube and everybody else's videos. And so I did glean from quite a few of those because I missed a couple of these. But we definitely see a sword, right? That looks like Narsil. Don't know if it is or not, but we have this nice like, oh, wait a minute, you know, even casual fans I think would recognize that and say, that's awfully familiar. Um, and I think it's okay that it looks like Peter Jackson's image of that as well. You know, there is this, this symbiotic relationship between recognizing that, that it's okay if these things reference each other because it means that it's all Tolkienian. Um, so I did like seeing that. We also have a picture behind Galadriel at one point of Baron and Luthien. Um, and Baron seems to be holding one of the Cimmerils, which is quite suggestive. Um, we also have Dromborleg, which is an axe. Um, and a swan shield that Tuor owned, who was Elrond's grandfather. Those are both placed in the background of the Palantir um, room, which is almost like a trophy room at this point. Um, and then there is also mention of the dragon helm of uh, Dulomen. And then I saw on Twitter, I have to go back and see if I can find this, that apparently somebody has planted the dragon helm in every episode. Well, that's awfully fun. Um, I don't know the importance of that yet, but it's just those little things that are planted in there that if you just see it, you go, oh, this is, you know, people of war that fought the giant battles against Morgoth, and of course they have swords and shields and things on display. That only makes sense. But if you know the lore, you're like, is that? Wait a minute. And it just grounds you in that so much more securely, and it gives you a little bit more faith that they did do some research, because now we know that they did, but I like to see it. I like to have that that visual cue telling me they know what they're talking about. Um, so yeah, so really enjoyed this episode. Again, so much to discuss, but there's, there's a nice little glossing over for you for round one, um, and we'll dig into more as the week goes on. Thanks.
Have I mentioned that I love the wave, right? The wave scene was amazing. And I have to admit, it's one of the things, this would have been on my short list, like top five things I was looking forward to in all five seasons of the Rings of Power show, was seeing the drowning of Numenor, seeing the wave going across the island. Now, I assume that when Numenor actually does sink into the sea, it's going to be even more spectacular than we saw there in episode four, that sort of teaser image. But still, the visual image, not just of the water flooding across Numenor, but the wave that you could see in the background. Tolkien described this one huge wave uh, uh, going over Numenor. Um, this, was a, this was an important recurring image for him. Um, he brings it up several times. Faramir mentions it, you may remember, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in The Return of the King, when he's standing on the wall with Eowyn and Sauron has fallen and the cloud rises up into the sky and he says, it reminds me of Numenor. I often dream of it, right? Um, now, the interesting thing about this is that Tolkien himself had a recurring dream, a recurring dream of a great greenish wave uh, coming down and sweeping across the land. He used to have this dream all the time, and it, it apparently came a couple times to his son Christopher as well. Tolkien incorporated this dream into his stories. And this dream, this recurring uh, dream that he had of the wave sweeping across the land and drowning it became the downfall of Numenor. I think this is one of the reasons why he was really attracted to the Atlantis myth, the, the idea of lost Atlantis, which sank beneath the sea, which is the origin of the Numenor story in Tolkien's mind. Um, now, and one really interesting note is that Tolkien said that when he bequeathed his dream to Faramir, um, when he put that line in Faramir's mouth, after that, he never, Tolkien never had that dream again. Uh, he says he felt like he got rid of it when he gave it to Faramir, right? Well, in episode four of The Rings of Power, Muriel is sharing that dream, and we get that same kind of experience. And I believe uh, that the showrunners are deliberately alluding to Tolkien's recurring dream, not just by the fact that Muriel is, is, you know, gets this vision anytime she looks into that palantir, but the way that it is clearly haunting her sleep, starting off with that dream sequence, right? Um, as she begins uh, to live through that. And of course, the palantir is going to become then, uh, the, you know, the heart of that entire, uh, that entire element of this part of the show. Now, the Palantir, I am fascinated at, about the Palantir and what they're going to do with it. I've been excited about the Palantir ever since we first saw it revealed in that trailer that was released at Comic-Con back, uh, back in July earlier this year. And here's what I think is so cool about the Palantir thing. The Palantiri are one of those things that Tolkien never got a chance fully to retcon in his story. So retconning, it means retroactive continuity, where you're going back, you think of an idea later on after a story has been written, and you've got to go back and, and make the thing you invent later on consistent with the story that you've written before. And the Palantiri are an example of this. Uh, Tolkien didn't think of the Palantiri. It wasn't until, uh, you know, Wormtongue hucks the Palantir at Gandalf's head uh, in, uh, in, in Isengard um, that the whole thing, you know, when Pippin goes and picks up the stone, Tolkien didn't know what it was, 
that Pippin picked up out of the water, right? It was only revealed as the story continues, and then he sees Sauron in it, and then Gandalf ends up lecturing him in the first chapter of Minas Tirith about the history of the Palantiri. That was the first time Tolkien had ever thought of it. The story was mostly written by then. And more importantly, his Numenor stories had also already been written before he invented the Palantiri. But the fact that the Palantiri came from Numenor was a crucial part of the story, as, as, of, of, the, of the background of the Palantiri as soon as he thought of them. Right? The Palantiri had been brought by Elendil over from Numenor. The Palantiri had come to the faithful of Numenor from the elves. Right? The elves gave them. They brought them from Toleresia, uh, the island of the elves, um, and gave them to the Numenorians. The faithful kept them, and Elendil and his sons bring them to Middle-earth with them, and that's how they end up in Middle-earth in the Third Age. So we know that the Palantiri were there in Numenor in the Second Age. It is an intrinsic part of the story of the Palantiri. And yet, no version of the Numenor story that Tolkien wrote includes them because he wrote all of those stories before he invented the Palantiri. So as soon as I saw the Palantir in the trailer, I was, I was just exploding with ideas. Wow, what are they going to do? Because, of course, of course the Palantiri would be there, right? But what's happening with them? Right? What role are they going to play in the story? Um, so I was very excited to see the Palantir. Now, a couple things. One, you'll remember that Muriel says to Galadriel that the Palantir that they're looking at is the one remaining. The other six have been lost or hidden away. Right? Some people were confused by this, saying, wait a second, Elendil brought seven with them to Middle-earth. Why are they lost? They're lost to the people in Armenilos, Right? The king's line only has the one Palantir. Tar Palantir had the one. And apparently uh, that was even by itself unique, I think. Um, I don't think the previous kings before Tar, Tar Palantir had had this particular stone before that they were able to look into. But uh, in any case, I think it's fairly clear that they're lost to the line of kings because the faithful are keeping them. The references that we got from Isildur in particular about the west of Numenor, um, the real Numenor, right, as his friend Velandil taunts him with, right? Um, I think that over in the western part of Numenor, the faithful still live. That's where, that's where the, the, there's still a settlement of the faithful. Um, I believe that they have the rest of the Palantiri and they're hiding them over there. Um, which is a pretty clever way of getting around having the Palantiri in general circulation um, because they become a fairly significant obstacle. If you can have them communicating from Middle-earth to Numenor, right, the whole time, that's going to change some storylines significantly. So how they integrate that is going to be interesting. And I think having them set aside and lost and not available at the beginning makes a whole lot of sense. But here's the thing I wanted in particular to talk about. Um, I think that they're doing a very clever thing indeed with the Palantir of Muriel and Tar Palantir up there in the tower. I think that they are evoking one of the Palantiri that we can read about in Appendix A of The Lord of the Rings and also in the essay on the Palantiri in Unfinished Tales. There we're told that of the seven Palantiri that were brought to Middle-earth by Elendil, one of them was special 
and different from all the rest. Most of them all communicate with each other, even are attuned to each other in certain ways so that they could communicate with each other, right? The, the, the Numenorean exiles could communicate with each other. But one of them was different. One of them was called the Elendil Stone because Elendil himself set it on a tower in the western part of Middle-earth, and it was not attuned to any of the others. When you looked in it, you couldn't communicate with anybody else. It only had one job, and its job was to look out to the west and enable Elendil both to get a glimpse of Elvenholm that was lost forever and Valinor that he could never go to, and to try to look in vain for Numenor, which had fallen and was no more. So there's this wistfulness, there's this nostalgia attached to the Elendil stone that's in the Western Tower that only shows a vision of what is lost in the West. My suspicion is that the Palantir that um, Muriel showed to Galadriel is that Palantir, is going to be what will be called the Elendil stone. Right now, apparently, when you look in it, all you see is the upcoming doom of Numenor. You see the drowning of Numenor replayed again and again and again. Um, And I suspect that they're doing a very clever thing and that Elendil is going to take that stone and he's going to bring it with him to Middle-earth and he's going to put it in a tower to the west, in which, at which point, one of two things are going to happen. Either it's going to change at that point. Once the downfall of Numenor actually happens, that it's currently foretelling, it's going to change and show the West as is described in the book. Or, and I think this is even likelier and kind of cool, it's going to keep showing the downfall of Numenor. It's going to continue showing exactly what it shows right now. But think about how that's going to change, how that would change after the downfall happens. Right now, it's a sign of doom. Right? It's, a, it's a sign of terror. But later on, after Numenor has fallen and Elendil and all of his people have been exiled and they know they're never going to see Numenor again, now that Palantir, which had shown the doom of the land, is going to be the only place where you can still see Numenor as it was. So that you could look into the Elendil stone and still see Numenor, but you would only see it falling. Right? The, the cost of looking back at Numenor is to be reminded again and again of its fall. And if they do that, I think that's going to be pretty awesome, actually. But one way or the other, I love the way that they're playing on this special Palantir. And I think we're going to find that the Palantir of Muriel is going to end up being the Elendil Stone. Now, we know that Sauron's rise to power is one of the big interests of season one. And therefore, the big question that we've always needed to answer is, why do people choose to serve Sauron? I mean, okay, orcs maybe, or trolls or whatever else, you know, uh, monstrous chihuahuas, whatever. But the question is people, right? Why do people choose to ally themselves to Sauron, and that was always going to be, for me, one of the really interesting questions that I couldn't wait to learn more about during the course of season one. Now, Adar from episode four gave us a lot to think about. So let's work through some of what we learned from Adar about Sauron's appeal and why this guy uh, appears to work 
for Sauron. So the very first thing we get from Adar about this is he emphasizes the lies that people have been told. That is, Adar has, has bought right, an alternative story, a, an entire alternative world history, apparently, in which the Valar are not the good guys. The elves have been deceived. Um, he said there are some of these lies that run so deep that even the rocks and the roots believe them. Um, by the way, I think that that's a reference to the line that Legolas says in Holland, in the Fellowship of the Ring. You may remember when they're traveling through Eregion, Celebrimbor's place, right? Much later, of course, in the Third Age. Um, and they talk about whether the land still remembers the elves. And Legolas says, no, the trees and the grass here don't remember them. Only I hear the stones lament them. Right, so the, the trees and the rocks don't remember. Or sorry, the trees and, and, the, and the grass don't remember, but the rocks remember. And so when Adar says that even the rocks and the roots remember, um, he is, I think, alluding to that line. That's in, in the show, they're, they're alluding to that line um, so that we can hear in Adar's view how deep these lies that the elves have believed go. By the way, this is another little hint of something I've been mentioning that I think we have lots of reasons to doubt, especially Galadriel's version of her backstory. Um, in the Silmarillion, Galadriel lies about, she conceals things anyway, about the past. She conceals the kinslaying. She only tells a partial version of what happened when the elves left Valinor, uh, when she tells it for the first time. And what we hear from Goadriel in the prologue of episode one is definitely a partial retelling. Um, so once again, I'm going to be interested to hear that. I'm not saying I think Adar is right and Goadriel is wrong, um, but this idea that Adar raises, that there are other ways of understanding, there are other versions of this story that some people at least believe, right? There are multiple versions out there and you have to figure out what is true, what really happened. I think is a little bit of a hint for us. But clearly, Adar has bought this other story. Now, where does he get this other story, right? I think it's pretty clear that he has gotten this story from Sauron. We know Tolkien says that Sauron um, did a lot of what he did, that is, gaining a lot of his followers and controlling a lot of his armies through cult religions, right? Through cult worship, either of Morgoth or himself. And it seems that Adar is a part of that in some way. Another thing that a lot of people picked up on and some people were confused about was the reference to gods that Adar made. Some people kind of reeled back from that a little bit and said, wait a second, that that's not a Tolkien word, right? Does Tolkien call the Valar gods ever? And I'd say two things to this. One, I would say, yes, actually Tolkien does call the Valar gods. The fact is, Tolkien was looking for a kind of a common noun to use to describe the Valar. Um, like collectively, what are they? Um, and there were really only two candidates that he had. One was gods and the other was angels, right? Spiritual beings kind of overseeing the world and in charge of stuff, right? Um, he really disliked both of those words for different reasons. I think he was uncomfortable with both of those words and he doesn't use either one of them very much. He's very resistant to using angels because that's a bad description. Uh, the word angel 
means messenger. It's not just a, a kind of being. It's a job description, and that's not the job description of the Valar. So he didn't like using the word angel to describe the Valar, though sometimes he kind of used it to help people get a vague idea of what the Valar were. More commonly, he called them gods, and often in his own explanations, he uses the word gods. You can find this in his letters a lot um, when he's explaining who the Valar are. There are a couple places within his stories that he uses that word as well. Um, but normally when he does, it's from a human perspective. That is, he says, for instance, in the Valaquenta, in the Silmarillion, that humans have often called the Valar gods. Now, this, uh, so, so on the one hand, yeah, Tolkien doesn't use that word a whole lot, but he does use it. But more importantly, um, many people have said, but it seems particularly weird if Adar is an elf. Do elves ever use the word gods to describe the Valar? It might be a human way to talk about them, but why would an elf do that? And my answer is, well, a normal elf wouldn't. But remember, Adar has just said, everything you know and believe is out the window. I think that Adar's use of the word gods to describe the Valar is a deliberate insult. He's not going to give them respect and call them by their proper names because he apparently rejects the entire hierarchy that elves believe in and reverence, right? So I think that his use of the word gods is a deliberate part of Adar's own alternative theology, which we don't really know very much about yet, um, but which I think he's pointing to in that scene. Now, this brings us to the second question about Adar, which is, what is his connection with the orcs exactly? Adar's name means father, and the orcs call him Lord Father, right? Um, what is his relationship to the orcs? Is he actually the father of the orcs in some sense? Um, and how could that be exactly? So let me back up for a second and I'll try to be brief about this, but this is a complicated topic, so bear with me for a moment. When Tolkien talked about the orcs and where the orcs came from, he had a bunch of different ideas. In fact, this was a big problem in Tolkien's world. Um, there are very few other things within Tolkien's whole world building that were more of a problem for him than the question of the origin of orcs, okay? So when Tolkien first wrote his stories in the beginning, Orcs were just like machines. They were just constructs. They were like little murder bots that Morgoth made and infused with, he made them out of slime and infused them with his own hatred. But later on, during the writing of The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien had a change of heart about that. And he decided, you know what? Theologically speaking, that doesn't make sense. Morgoth should not be able to create something that has an ability to think on its own. Right? That's just not something that an evil creature should be able to do. So, really, that anybody besides God should be able to do. So that can't be the origin of orcs. So he began to come up with alternative theories about where orcs came from. The primary one of these was that they were elves who were corrupted. So th there are some elves who get captured, tortured, corrupted, and then they eventually become the orcs. Um, this is the idea that's published in the published Silmarillion, but the question is not as open and shut as the Silmarillion makes it look. Christopher, when he edited the Silmarillion, just had to kind of choose that one out of about 10 different theories that Tolkien was playing with about where orcs came from. However, Adar 
as father to the orcs suggests that they are derived from elves. We can already see in orcs in the way they look, the shape of their ears, for instance, in the show, that they are related to elves. And with Adar, the elf father of orcs there, it really does suggest that there were original orcs who were corrupted and the orcs were bred from them. But Adar suggests that he is connected with Sauron. And when we hear from him in his first conversation with Arondir, it's pretty clear that, um, that he himself, that Adar himself, is from Beleriand, where Arondir also was from. Um, in the Silmarillion, when we're told about the elf origin of orcs, we're told that this happened at the very, very beginning, right after the elves awoke for the first time, long before they moved to Beleriand. This sounds like Adar is a is is he comes into the story it seems much much later than you'd think would have to happen as a result of that. One of the things that I can't help but wonder then, are we being given to understand that maybe Sauron has bred a new breed of orcs with the help somehow or other of Adar? I don't know. It's possible. We see Sauron breeding new species of orcs in the Lord of the Rings, right? It's one of the things that he does. He tries to innovate and to improve on Morgoth's original orc formula. Did something like that happen? Did Adar and Sauron at some point get connected, maybe at the end of the First Age, and Sauron convinces Adar to help him form this new breed of orc, right? Remember also that the orcs were acting differently than the elves expected. When Arondir was talking to his captain in episode three, remember the captain was saying these orcs act unlike, they, they look like they, they reverence Adar, and I didn't think orcs were capable of reverence. And of course, in episode four, we see them acting reverently. Right? Remember the little like orc funeral that we see happening there? That's different. That's not how orcs normally have behaved. Right? So I think we have some reason to suspect that the orcs that we see in this show that we have seen so far are a different kind of orc, maybe a new breed that Sauron has been working on, possibly in some way or other with the help of Adar. We'll see, but that's what I was thinking after watching episode four. Now, the third and final big question about Adar is, who is he? Do we know him? Right? Now, of course, many people were suspecting that he was Sauron, right? including, of course, Arondir's captain in episode three. I think it's pretty clear, uh, in fact, explicit, that that's not the case, right? that he is not Sauron, but does serve Sauron. Right? So clearly he's not Sauron. But is he some elf that we should know? Is he going to end up being somebody that we would recognize from the Silmarillion? And I think that's possible. Right? I don't want to rule that out. And there's been a great deal of speculation online this week uh, as Tolkien fans have been talking and thinking about this. Um, of the discussion that I've heard, there are two, uh, two that I thought of right away and that I see many people discussing. Um, and I want to talk about each of those for a second. Uh, the first is Maeglin. Um, so Maeglin was from Gondolin, um, which was the great hidden city of Gondolin. Gondolin gets referred to in The Hobbit many times. That's where Bilbo's sword is from. Um, anyway, Maeglin is very important because he is the only traitor 
that we get. The only elf who betrays his kindred to Morgoth. It's a really huge deal. Um, so he betrays, Gondolin is a hidden city. Morgoth doesn't know where it is. But Maeglin gets captured and gives up Gondolin to Morgoth, and he leads the orcs in to attack the city. Because um, he's resentful and he wants to get Tuor killed, um, Tuor with the axe and shield that we saw earlier in the episode. Anyway, um, Maeglin in the Silmarillion is killed. He's thrown off a cliff down into a, a pool of flame. So some have said, well, hang on a second. He vanishes into the flame, but uh, maybe in the show they're going to say he pulled through, right? He, he, he lived uh, and became Adar, and that's why he's all burned, right, on his face because of the fire that he fell into. It's a good theory. I think it works in lots of ways. I don't expect it to be true. And the primary reason I don't expect it to be true is that it's going to take a... I just tried to explain that story as quickly as possible. It's going to take a lot of exposition on screen in order to give the backstory and explain who this Maeglin guy is, right? And I just really don't think they're going to have time to do that. The second candidate is Maglor. Now, Maglor is one of the sons of Feanor. Um, and here's how the Maglor theory makes some pretty good sense. Um, Maglor is one of the last two sons of Feanor. So remember, Feanor makes the Silmarils, and then the Silmarils are lost, Morgoth takes them and everything. Anyway, when Morgoth is defeated at the end of the first stage, they recover the last two Silmarils. One of them is up in the sky with Eärendil on his ship. But the other two, they recover. Now, Maglor and his brother Mithros are the last two of the Feanorians, the last two sons of Feanor to survive, who have sworn the oath to recover the Silmarils no matter what. And they break in and they steal the last two Silmarils and they run off with them. But the Silmarils burn them. The Silmarils reject them because they've done so many horrible things. Mithros goes insane and uh, dives into a crack in the, in the earth and the Silmaril is lost in the, in the, 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 the belly of the earth. Maglor is burned by the Silmaril and he chucks it out into the ocean and it's lost in the sea and he spends the rest of his unknown amount of time wandering sadly along the beaches and singing sad songs. Maglor was one of the great minstrels of all time. So, yes, it's theoretically possible that Maglor, son of Feanor, could have survived, gone insane, because of the pain, maybe even the, 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 the burns on his face are from the Silmaril, right, when he held it, um, and he's gone insane and ends up, you know, hooking up with Sauron and then becoming the father of the orcs. I, that is also, I think, conceivable. And I have to say, of the two, I think that Maglor is more likely. Um, I could see that working better, because at least in the show, they've already set up Feanor and the Silmarils. So it's only one little step from there. Maglor, by the way, would be Celebrimbor's uncle, uh, so there'd be a close connection between Adar and Celebrimbor uh, if, uh, if that did end up happening. Of course, the third option is that Adar is just is not a named elf that we know uh, from the original, uh, from, you know, from the Silmarillion. Personally, I kind of incline towards this. I don't really expect that Adar is going to end up being somebody whose name we know from the Silmarillion. I think that would involve too much Silmarillion explanation that they don't have the rights to, and we're unlikely to see that. I think that it's enough that he is probably a Noldo from Beleriand, and therefore closely connected with a bunch of the characters that we see. Um, and this is going to change um, how we're going to 
look at the orcs. He's going to be one of the major captains of Sauron. Um, there's going to be some really interesting connections, I think, between him and the other elves that we see. So I think there's going to be a lot to be interested in with Adar, but um, I personally don't expect him to be one of the named elves uh, from the first age. Now, Adar, therefore, is the one big answer that we get to the question about why would anybody serve Sauron? But the other place where we see this question being answered is in the Southlands, of course, because we know that the Southlands where Theo and Bronwyn live is going to become Mordor. All of those people down there are prime recruiting material for Sauron and his future army and supplies, right? Um, and in fact, we know it's part of their story that they used to serve Morgoth, that they were, had sworn uh, to Morgoth. Remember um, uh, Halbrand talking about that blood oath that his ancestor took, right? Um, moreover, we saw the elf-human relationships down there. Remember how we were talking about how the elves of the Southlands make the mistake, right? Because they see generation after generation of human go by and they don't really keep track of the time, right? They still think of these people as the servants of Morgoth when in fact it was a thousand years ago and these people don't know Morgoth at all. But because they have been suspicious of them, right? Because they've been guarding them and, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, giving them dirty looks for a thousand years, um, the humans have felt oppressed, right? They have felt marginalized down there, and they are, many of them, uh, are looking for a way to rule themselves um, and would likely welcome Sauron as an opportunity, as a deliverer, even, from their situations. Waldrick, uh, the old guy, Waldrick, the guy who uh, runs the inn, right, in Bronwyn's town, is the clear spokesperson for this perspective. When he's talking to Theo about the sword, which both of them have used, right? He says that it is a power. It is a power that is given, right? And he makes this delightful uh, sort of tantalizing reference, right, to the beautiful servant, which is Sauron. He talks about Morgoth, the master, and he talks about the beautiful servant. So, by the way, hot Sauron confirmed by Waldrig in episode four, right? Um, Sauron is the beautiful servant. He is the one who is going to be able to give them the power to cast out anybody who's given them a hard time to establish their lives. We see they're living in poverty. They're living really hard lives, right? Um, the lot of men in uh, that part of the world is definitely unhappy, but maybe with the power of Sauron behind them, they could establish their own realm. They could do things their own way, right? And that temptation, uh, I think, is going to be the primary thing we're going to see. Theo, of course, is where I think that we're going to see this played out. We know that Theo wants the power to accomplish things uh, to help people, to help his mother, to help his neighbors, right? His use of the sword, his plan to go back to town, the sword, the hilt was his ace in the hole that was going to keep him safe, right, when he was going to go into the town. So already we can see Theo tapping into the power of evil, right, tapping into the power of Sauron in order to empower him to do what he thinks is the right thing. That's not a great sign. But in these things, I think we can begin to see how they're constructing the answer to the big question about Sauron.
So the situation in Numenor is kind of complicated. On the one hand, one of the things that we see among the people of Numenor is that they're sort of democratic, or at least a fairly egalitarian society, right? One of the first things that we see about them when Galadriel and Halbrand get there is the whole nobody bows to anybody in Numenor thing, right? And I really like how this played out. The idea that um, it's sort of a level state, right? You know, there's like the People's Republic of, of Numenor uh, tracks with me really well for a couple of reasons. For one, in one sense, I like it um, because it uh, maps with the rebellion. Here's what I mean by that. Um, the, the, the rebellion, the primary rebellion of Numenor, like the big story of Numenor, is their rebellion against the Valar which is basically their rebellion against the natural hierarchical order. There are the Valar who are in charge of the world. They're the bosses, right? Um, the Numenorians are pretty cool, but they're supposed to submit to the will of the Valar. So the fact that they have built their society around this, hey, nobody bows to anybody in Numenor thing, right, does project, I think, very well onto, as a, a sort of a gentle first step, right, toward, it's not open rebellion, but this idea that everybody's equal makes it uh, more natural to say, or makes it more unnatural, I guess I would say, uh, to submit to a hierarchical authority, right? So the way, in a way, I think we can see this sort of setting up the rebellion to come. In addition, however, it also sets them up to be ruled by a dictator um, in that we have often seen a democratic republic uh, in history, right, become ruled by a dictator, whether you're talking about Rome and Julius Caesar or whether you're talking about the French Revolution and Napoleon, right? And so I think that we can see our Pharisee kind of stepping in in that way. Now, um, we also hear from Pharisee's own lips in episode four how the Numenorians are rewriting history. We got our first hint of, about this from Muriel when Galadriel refers to how the Numenorians were given the island, right? And Muriel, in episode three, immediately cuts in and says, nobody gave us anything. We earned it, right? This is, we can already see the way in which the Numenorians are retelling their own history. Our Pharisee retells it even more explicitly in the scene when he's winning over the crowd in the plaza, the sort of, you know, uh, rumbling crowd, right? And he says to them, we are the descendants of Elros Tarminyatar, who's, who defeated Morgoth, right? He gives the ancestors, the Edain, right? Uh, which means the, 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 those houses of the, of the humans who were loyal to the elves. Um, he gives them the credit for overthrowing Morgoth, like single-handedly or something, right? Like it's all down to the Numenorians. And that means, of course, they've rewritten the Valar out of history. Elrond, later on in episode four, remember, uh, tells us the story of Eärendil's appeal to the Valar, right? His desperate appeal to the Valar, which led the Valar to have mercy and come themselves to defeat Morgoth. The Edain could have done nothing of the sort without the miraculous intervention of the Valar, but we see they've rewritten that story, right? So I'm really interested in the ways in which the, uh, the story of the uh, of the Numenorians is setting itself up for the rebellion and the downfall to come. But there's some other elements of Numenorian society and of Pharazon's role in it particularly that I think are very interesting. 
Another is the role of craftsmen in this society. We, it's what we've primarily seen. Of course, we've gotten some stuff with the ruling family, right, with Muriel and Tar Palantir. But almost everybody else that we meet is involved with the guilds. And this includes Elendil's family, right? There are really only two other, you know, there, there's the royal family. Outside the royal family, there are only two other sort of um, elements of society that, that have been relevant to the story, right? The guilds and the sea service, right? Um, now, that I think we're going to learn more about later on. But the guilds, we've seen more of. Um, here's what I like about the guilds, and here's how I think the guilds are important and make a lot of sense for the Numenorean culture. I think this is a really, really excellent um, idea by the showrunners. First, because um, of all of the things that Numenor was famous for, their skill at things is the most enduring. The Numenoreans achieved technological greatness, technological advancement far beyond anything from Middle-earth. We can still see evidence of this in the Lord of the Rings with the walls of Orthanc, with the walls of Minas Tirith that nothing can penetrate, nothing can scratch, right? There's some traits, there's some tricks of building, some technologies that they developed that the people of the Third Age don't have any idea how to do, right? So that the Numenorean culture should be based on and proud of its craftsmen makes perfect sense to me. And there are a couple other ways in which I think that this pays off. One of those is, again, politically. If you have a society of craftsmen who are primarily run by guilds, and we've already seen in the last two episodes how much control the guilds have over Numenorean life. Poor Halbrand can't even get a petty job in a, in, in a, a blacksmith shop, right, without a badge from the guilds. And, of course, we see our Farazan appealing to the guilds, uh, right, and, and the guild membership. We see Aarian uh, uh, trying to get into the Builders Guild, right, where... Presumably, she'll learn how to make the walls of Minas Tirith or something someday. Um, but um, these guilds clearly control a lot, of a lot of society. And that means that somebody who controls the guilds is going to be able immediately to build a massive uh, uh, area of control in that society, right? So the guilds provide a very, very logical way in which a society can go from a generally egalitarian and sort of quasi-democratic society to a dictatorship very, very quickly. And of course, there's Farazan, the chancellor, who is a representative of all of the guilds, right? He has every one of their badges on his front, right? And it seems, based upon his own words, that he has earned that, right? that he has earned a badge in every single guild that there is. He is one of them, but he is at the center of them. And it's going to be it provides a clear mechanism by which they can, uh, he can rise to power. But there's another payoff um, on the Tolkien side, right, uh, of the craftsmanship and the guild focus of the Numenorean society. And that is, well, it means that the Numenoreans as a culture are sub-creators. They're makers. Now, sub-creation is a word that Tolkien used to describe, you know, he didn't call artists creators because only God can create. They're sub-creators. They create, they're makers who make things like God does. They take raw materials and make things, right? They, they don't create, they sub-create, right? Sub-creators in Tolkien's world, sub-creation sub is a very, very good thing, but 
it's also true that all of the worst of the bad guys in Tolkien's world are sub-creators who go bad. Because when sub-creators go bad, they go very, very bad, right? And so again, I think that we can see how the, uh, the way is being paved for the entire Numenorean society to go very, very bad eventually, right? Now, in the middle of all of this, as I've said, is Farazan. And in the scene where we see him appealing to the crowds, right, we can see how he is one of them, right? He, hold, he, he, he swears by the calluses on his hands. And I, I, I have liked that line more and more the more I've thought about it, right? He is appealing, to, he is one of the people, right? He is not coming in from above. He is not somebody to whom they are supposed to submit because he is an authority. He is rising up from among them right? He is therefore going to be one of the people who will have the ability to lead the kind of rebellion against authority that it's Farazan's destiny, I believe, to do, right? So I really, really liked that. And of course, it means that he's a sub-creator, possibly one of the greatest of all of their craftsmen, if he is in all of the guilds, right? Which again suggests he's going to go very, very wrong. Now, uh, his position, Farazan's position, initially is clearly against the elves. Now, I talked about the history of Numenor before, um, that there was a point in time when the Numenorians stopped welcoming the elves and set up on their own, right? The primary platform of, uh, of you know, the, 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 the primary, um, you know, element of, of Farazan's public p- platform here is that Numenor shall always be a place for men, right? No elves welcome. Um, we are going to remain for the Numenorians only, right? This sort of isolationist um, idea. But then Farazan does a strange thing. The hardest thing for me to understand, the thing that took me most by surprise as I was watching episode four for the first time, was Farazan's sudden turn at the end of the episode. When Muriel turns around, and the petals start falling, and Muriel physically turns around, and she changes her mind, and she calls Galadriel back, and she, she reverses direction completely and says she's going to bring an army with Galadriel to help the Southlands, just like Galadriel asked, right? When that happened, that was a little bit surprising. Um, but the element of it that surprised me most was Farazan's support. Based on what, what the crowd had been saying, at the beginning, and what Farazan had been saying to the crowd, I expected Farazan to be wild against this, right? In fact, I thought that Muriel's turning around was going to create the rift between herself and Farazan, which was going to lead to the political turmoil, which was ultimately going to catapult Farazan into, into authority um, and get rid of the line of kings there completely, right? Um, but that didn't happen. Instead, we see Farazan supporting her, which was totally unexpected to me. But here's the thing. I think that Farazan is more cunning than I am. And I suspect that he has a plan for this, that he sees an opportunity here that we're going to learn more about in episode five. And this brings me to my last point about Farazan, and that is the connection with Middle-earth. So one of the elements of Numenorean society, of the Numenorean story, I should say, which is most prominent in Tolkien's version of it, is the progression of the relationship between the Numenoreans and the people of Middle-earth. That's the clear indicator of where that society is, right, in their spectrum of 
you know, goodness or rebellion, right? Originally, when they go to Middle-earth, they are benefactors to the people of Middle-earth. Then they become rulers of the people of Middle-earth, and they take tribute from them. Then they become colonial masters over the people of Middle-earth, and they start enslaving the people of Middle-earth. Eventually, they take them off for human sacrifices, and it gets even worse. So that's the progression that we see, which, again, is the clear indicator of where exactly... Numenor is on their trajectory. And this is one of the things that many people have been, including me, have been very interested to see how they would handle in this show. Now, in episodes three and four, from what we've seen, we have seen very, very little by way of reference to Numenorian contact in Middle-earth. I don't recall any positive evidence in episodes three and four that the Numenorians have definitely gone to Middle-earth by this point in the story. Halbrand does not even seem to know that Numenor existed, right? Which you'd think he would if they had been back demanding tribute or something like that. Um, And you would think that Halbrand in the Southlands, based on what we know uh, from Tolkien's stories, would be one of the places where the Numenorians might have visited, right? So that's one thing that makes me think maybe the Numenorians haven't gone to Middle-earth at all yet, right? Here's another thing, um, because and this is where we get into the time compression of the story. Are they maybe not yet? Have they not yet? Are, are we to understand that the Numenoids haven't yet been to Middle Earth, right? Um, and that this expedition with Galadriel to the Southlands is going to be their first contact back in Middle Earth. Now, I'm not 100% convinced that that's true. As I said, the other element of Numenorean society that has been strongly emphasized besides the guilds has been the sea service, right? And I don't know what they're up to. I don't know where they're sailing. Where are they going? What do they do in the Numenorean Navy, right? Um, We're never told that. Um, What, do they just sail around in circles out there in the ocean? I have no idea what they do. So it is very possible that there are some Numenorians that, that like within the sea service, they are in fact sailing back to Middle Earth and we've just not yet seen the evidence of it in the show. I think that that's possible. But at the very least, I think that the invasion of the Southlands for the rescue, you know, merciful invasion of the Southlands is going to provide some opportunities. Um, and in fact, in Tolkien's writings, the first time the Numenorians come with military force to Middle-earth in order to help and rescue people who are being oppressed by Sauron in Middle-earth, um, the first time this happens is also the first time that the Numenorians begin to settle there and start their interactions with, with the people of Middle-earth. Um, that is, in fact, a turning point in the career of the Numenorians. Um, so I think it is possible that this invasion, that the reason that Farazan made his sudden turn, the reason he made the, to me, quite unexpected choice not to resist Muriel's decision to go to Middle-earth is that he sees an angle here, that he sees an opportunity to expand their mercantile empire, um, to expand their power, to develop their military power, It does not seem to me that Numenor is at this point in the story a very developed military culture. They have been at peace for a very long time. They are people, they're just craftsmen. They don't have an army, apparently, 
that we can see. They have guards, which are not very competent, by the way. Um, but anyway, like we, we, we don't see, that doesn't seem to be a big element of their society at all. There's the ships and there's the guilds. Is Farazan thinking that A, contact with Middle-earth, we go over to Middle-earth and rescue them, we can profit from this and therefore expand the power of Numenor? Is he perhaps thinking that putting together a military expedition of volunteers, because we have no army, right? We gather volunteers and we take them over there, and this is a great way for us to, maybe it would be a good thing if Numenor had an army. Maybe if Numenor had an army, we could expand beyond Numenor. Maybe we could conquer Middle-earth eventually. Maybe this is Farazan thinking this is the first step not to reforming alliances with the elves, but to conquering Middle-earth, even the elves themselves, right? Maybe this is what we're, in, we're, we're finally, be, we're finally, I say, in episode two of Numenor, um, uh, that we're seeing beginning to take shape in Farazan's mind. Um, so I think that we're seeing a lot of possibilities. I can't wait to see how this progression advances, um, how the relationship with the people of Middle-earth goes. My suspicion is that Farazan is going to move fairly quickly to the we're taking tribute from people stage of things after the invasion of the Southlands. So I have loved the dwarf story in The Rings of Power. It's been one of my favorite plot lines in the entire show. I love the characters, and I have really enjoyed not only the interactions between Disa and Durin, but also the interactions between Durin and Elrond. It's been great. But in episode four, with the reveal of Mithril, the story of the dwarves is really beginning to move forward in some interesting ways. I loved the idea of the old mine. I talked a little bit about Mithril before, um, but one thing I wanted to add here, I, I love the fact that the old mine is beneath the mirror mirror. Um, now, let me explain that a little bit. So the mirror mirror is a lake. So mirror, M-E-R-E, which means like a lake or pond, and mirror, so it, you know, it's like a pond that looks like a mirror, right? Because it reflects the sky. In it, you can see the stars all day long. You can see the stars reflected in the mirror mirror. Now, the dwarf story behind the mirror mirror is that this is the lake where Durin arrives. So the original Durin, Durin the first, the father of all dwarves, is wandering through the world and he comes to the mirror mirror and he looks in the mirror mirror and sees reflected in the mirror mirror a crown of stars above his head. And he takes that as a sign that this is where he's supposed to settle down and that is the origin of Khazad-dum. So the mirror mirror, is, there's a stone erected there, the stone of Durin, next to the side of the mirror mirror, which marks the spot where Durin first stood and looked into the mirror mirror. So there's, uh, there's this mythic significance of the mirror mirror in dwarf society. So the fact that this mine of Mithril, this vein of Mithril uh, that Disa found um, uh, when she was resonating the caverns, is in the old mine underneath the mirror mirror seems to me significant, right? It suggests that this mithril, this newly discovered mithril, is like at the heart of dwarvendom, right? I've mentioned that there already seems to me some echoes between the mithril that Prince Durin has found and the Arkenstone that Thorin is so obsessed with in The Hobbit, right? Um, there in The Hobbit, the Arkenstone is called the heart of the mountain. And I think it's 
it's the implication seems to me to be, again, with the connection with the mirror mirror, that the mithril is in some sense, maybe not the heart of the mountain, more like the, I don't know, veins, the blood of the mountain, right, uh, going through the stone. Remember how the mountain and the stone is treated very much like a living person um, uh, by the dwarves, right? So there's that sense of the, uh, of the, the, the mithril being its, being its heart's blood or its, I don't know, its nervous system or something, right? Anyway, something essential uh, to the mountain. Um, so that's one element of the mithril that we see, which I think is Really interesting, um, and I'm not sure exactly where this is going to go because, of course, we're also told that, as we discussed earlier, it's very dangerous to mine. Um, so the peril to his people involved in that seems kind of at conflict, or at least to increase the risk of this. Does it mean they're not supposed to mine it? Is it there? Is it special? Is, it, is there some reason they shouldn't? Mine it. Remember Disa's first speech when she was explaining resonating to Elrond that when you resonate the stone, what you're doing is you're sort of communicating with the mountain and finding out where you're supposed to dig, where you're not supposed to dig, right? Um, where you should leave the mountain untouched. And so this is already the question that's looming over this mithril mine. Should they just leave this mine untouched? And clearly Prince Durin and King Durin do not see eye to eye on that question. Now, let me here mention the Balrog in the room, right? And that is the Durin's Bane question. There are lots of hints that that's the direction that this story is building up to, right? Um, Lots of hints, and this, you know, we began to pick up these hints from that very first speech by Disa, where she was explaining about resonating her very first references to some places where you should leave the mountain undisturbed uh, made most Tolkien fans remember the dwarves digging too greedily and too deep and waking the nameless fear, waking the Balrog from his sleep who is going to come and destroy all of Khazadum and turn it into Moria the Black Pit, right? We all know that's going to happen eventually, right? Setting up what we see in the Lord of the Rings. Um, The question is, is that where this story is going? Is that where the dwarf plot line is ultimately going to end in the Rings of Power series? Are we going to get Durin's Bane, the Balrog, coming out? Now, I know we saw a picture of the Balrog, right, in the trailers, Um, So we know there's a Balrog shot coming up at some point in this season, right? That doesn't to me prove that we're necessarily going to go full Durin's Bane direction uh, during these five seasons, Um, but it's obviously on the table. Let me point out at first that there's a lot to like about this, right? There's a lot to like about the idea that the dwarf plotline is ultimately going to end in the fall of Khazad-dûm, in the emergence of Durin's Bane and the fall of Khazad-dûm. One thing to like about it is the clear parallel that it establishes between Khazad-dûm and Numenor, right? You've got these two great pinnacle of their relative world's societies, greatest civilization of humans, greatest civilization of dwarves. Both of them would be then destined to ultimate fall and destruction, right? through their own choices, through their own actions. And we would get to see the similarities and the differences between how those two things played out. And as I say, there's a lot to like about that. There's a lot of really cool stuff story-wise they could do with that. The other is simply the tragedy. I already love the characters of Durin and Disa. And if in the end, Prince Durin 
ends up being the one who delves too greedily and too deep and awakes the Balrog, that's um, uh, going to be tragic, right? That's going to be really, really sad. And of course, you can begin to see how potentially the rings of power, the dwarf rings of power, could factor into this and perhaps accelerate the corruption that leads to those poor decisions. It could totally work. Of course, the other reason that we have to admit, I think everybody has to admit that there's a lot to like about this idea, is that seeing the Balrog awaken and destroy Khazad-dûm will be awesome, right? I'm not saying I don't want to see that on camera because I totally do. I think that's going to be an amazing thing to see. So there's a lot to like about the idea that this show might culminate, the dwarf plot might culminate in the emergence of the Balrog and the destruction of Khazad-dûm and the establishment of Moria the Black Pit. But there's also some things to dislike about it, and I still personally lean towards dislike. I've been saying uh, on Twitter that this is my number one thing I hope does not happen in the Rings of Power show, and let me explain why. Um, The reason I am still hoping, kind of against hope at this point, because it is starting after four episodes to look that way, um, the reason that I'm still kind of hoping it doesn't happen is because I dislike this particular time displacement. Um, What I mean by that, the emergence of the Balrog and the destruction of Khazad-dûm in Tolkien's chronology happens in the year 1980 of the Third Age. So if they put that story into this show, if they culminate the Khazad-dûm story with the emergence of the Balrog, they're going to be moving that forward by more than 2,000 years, okay? Now, um, some of you might be saying, well, hang on a second. Why are you objecting to that when you don't object to the other displacements that they're doing? I mean, heck, they're moving the forging of the rings of power 1,500 years into the future. Why not move the fall of Khazad-dûm then 2,000 years into the past, right? Those are totally different situations, and let me explain why. Whenever I think about an adaptation choice like this, um, there are always costs and benefits. There are some significant benefits to making a change like that. So, for instance, the shifting of the rings of power in Tolkien's chronology, the forging of the rings of power, and the fall of Numenor happen 1,500 years apart, right? Um, By shrinking that and having those two things happening more or less simultaneously... In the, sh- in, the, in the show story, they gain quite a bit, right? They gain being able to tell those stories all at the same time. It's like those things being compacted together. Maggie talked about this a little bit in her segment today. Um, and that's, you gain much by that. Now, what's the cost, though? You always have to think about the cost. Um, that's what you gain. How much does it cost? Well, to me, the moving of the rings of power does not affect very much. Not much happens in that 1,500 years, really, right? Nothing that you couldn't get around and change. I don't feel there's a very significant cost. Um, You still need time to make sure that after you do the Rings of Power thing, um, there's still enough time to get to the the last alliance, right? But I think that they can easily manage that. I don't think they're going to lose a whole lot in the time gap between the, uh, the, the Rings of Power. I mean, in Tolkien's chronology... Sauron forges the One Ring, destroy, you know, uh, uh, attacks the, the rest of them, you know, uh, has a war with the elves, and then pretty much nothing happens on that plot line for a millennium, right? Skipping that rather uneventful millennium in Eriador, 
I don't think it's a very big cost, right? However, moving the, the uh, awakening of Durin's Bane from the year 1980 of the Third Age all the way back into the Second Age is a major change that I think has a much higher cost. Um, first of all, it's a major event in the middle of the Third Age. Um, it's not a Second Age event, it's a Third Age event. It, to me, it's one thing to say, there's these bunches, bunch of Second Age events, and we're going to kind of tell them as if they all happened in fairly close proximity of each other. I think you can get away with that pretty well without radically changing the story. But to go and say, I'm going to take this Third Age story, and we're going to make it a Second Age story, it, 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 it has more consequences. Here are two consequences that I would point out quickly. Well, three. Three consequences I would point out quickly. One, when in 1980 of the Third Age, when Khazad-dûm falls, it falls at a very non-coincidental time. That is, it's, almost in, it's within the same decade of when the witch king of Angmar destroys the northern kingdom of the Dúnedain, destroys Arnor. In other words, we see the lieutenants of Sauron, we see the bad guys who are not, Sauron is still building his power. He's not ready to reveal himself yet, but he is doing a lot of work behind the scenes, he and his lieutenants doing a lot of work behind the scenes in order to bring about the destabilization of kingdoms and strongholds around Middle-earth, so that when Sauron does rise to power, it'll be easier for him, right? And by coincidence, all these things happen right at once. It shows Sauron is at work here. So the, it's, it's to me a pretty significant coincidence that the Balrog happens to wake up just then, at the same time that the Witch King is destroying Arnor. And that whole element, the role of that story in the story of the rise of Sauron in the Third Age, you don't have that anymore. If we, if we transport that back into the Second Age. The second cost is the cost on the story of the founding of Erebor. The story of the dwarves in the Third Age is that Khazad-dûm is still going strong for two, almost 2,000 years, right? Remains the wonder of the world for two millennia until the tragedy happens. And then in the latter portions of the Third Age, we see the dwarves scrambling and trying to figure out what to do. And eventually, of course, this leads to the founding of Erebor, the Lonely Mountain, by, Thrain, by you know, uh, Thror, Thran, and Thorin uh, and their family, right? So um, if you move the fall of Khazad-dûm all the way back to the Second Age, now we have this big hole in the middle of the Third Age. What were the dwarves doing? If Khazad-dûm has already fallen by the end of the Second Age, then if we're going to tell any stories about the dwarves in the Third Age, including the one that we know best, the story of the Lonely Mountain and of Thorin's people, we have to now do a lot of work from scratch to make up new stuff, right? And I don't think that... Th so again, it's not that that can't be done, but it's expensive, right? And the third expense is simply the loss of the Golden Age of Khazad-dûm. It's clear, as I've mentioned before, it's clear that at this point in the show, Khazad-dûm is not yet Khazad-dûm, right? It's getting there. It's growing. It's becoming amazing, right? M remember how much Elrond is, you know, says it's grown in the last 20 years, right? It's still only just starting to reach its peak. So that means that if it falls by the end of season five, that we will barely get a chance to even know the golden age. The golden age of Khazad-dûm is going to be very, very short. And that seems to me a sad loss. 
So these are the things, th these are the reasons why I think the shifting of Durin's Bane back into the Second Age would be expensive. It's not impossible. I don't say it couldn't work. And I don't say, as I said before, there are lots of reasons to like it and to think that it could work very well within the storyline of the Rings of Power show. I personally feel that the awesomeness that we might see there would be dearly bought. And I'm not sure that it is a cost that I myself would want to, to, to pay. So this is why I have been, and I've been you know, many times kind of resistant to this. I'm still slightly desperately <laughs> holding out hope um, that we're gonna see something else, that that's not in fact where we're going here, that we're merely anticipating the eventual fall of Khazad Doom, and we're not going to actually see Durin's Bane awaken and the entire collapse of Khazad Doom in this show. Maybe, maybe that'll end up being right, and I'll end up being very happy about that if it is. If not, I can reconcile myself to this. As I say, I think it could work out really well for the story that they're telling here. Um, and then we'll see what they would end up doing in the Third Age if we get another Third Age story afterwards. But um, this is where it does seem to me that the Mithril story seems to be pointing in Episode 4. Thanks for joining us. Once again, I didn't get through a lot that I wanted to talk about. I have talked about Bronwyn and Arondir's relationship. I didn't get to talk about Celebrimbor's towers. And I didn't even get to say anything about Halbrand at all. So I hope that you will join me and Maggie on Thursday at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time for Other Minds and Hands. In Other Minds and Hands, we get to have a more leisurely discussion and answer questions from the audience. Also, if you want to participate in discussion asynchronously, join us on Reddit, where the folks on the Lord of the Rings on Prime subreddit have created a thread for us. So go to r slash LOTR underscore on underscore prime. Now, once episode five drops, you can join me and Maggie for our quick reaction show on Friday afternoon at noon Eastern time on Twitter. Just follow me on Twitter at TolkienProf and you'll be able to join us for our live discussion to get our reactions and hopefully meet a special guest with us. Thanks for joining us, and I'd better get out of here because it looks like the wave might come over that hill at any minute. Bye now.